Good afternoon all, Steve Parisi here with IBC Global. Hope your day is off to a fantastic start as usual. Today we have one familiar face and then a guest as well that has agreed to meet with us and we're gonna have some fun. So we've got Denzel. Denzel, how are you doing today? Doing great, always an honor to be here. Likewise, thanks so much for your time. And then we have Philip Wagner. Philip, how are you today? Also doing very well, and thank you for the invitation to participate today. Absolutely. No, thanks for taking time out of your day. I, I'm sure you've got a ton going on. So to start things off, um, Philip and I, I mean, we work together, but not, not so much directly. The primary relationship here, I can't take any credit for it, and I will not, <laughs> is primarily between Denzel and Philip, and then that's how we got connected as well, just in all of us working together. But to, to kick things off, uh, I guess Denzel and Philip, if you'd like to begin with how you guys met, kind of how you started your, your journey working together, and we'll just take it from there uh, and touch on some of the topics we want to talk about, uh, just for listeners so they're aware as well, is a little bit in the 7702 changes and using policies for corporations and small businesses. We will talk about that. But why don't we start with the beginning, if you guys would like? Yeah, definitely. Sure. Um you know, I'll give it from my perspective and then I want Philip to chime in as well and just kind of get that dynamic between two different uh, viewpoints, which is really cool. So um, I was I did some homework I, before we went live. I looked at my email history and looked up Philip and I saw that he became a client on March 6, 2019. So him and I have been working together for, you know, over two years now. Um, and. I was looking at some conversations where it was a, it was so funny where he was like, Hey, Denzel, like your work, like what you're doing. Um, looking to do a consultation first, had a bad experience with some other consultants. So I want to make sure you're the real deal. And, you know, I was responding like, yep, you know, here's my consultation fee. Here's um, the days that I do consultations Monday through Thursday. And then some on Saturdays, nothing on Friday or Sunday. Um, you're able to book a, uh, your time through Calendly and here's the cost. And I've got my lifetime program and I've got this course and I'm just like breaking it all down. Um, and then I just saw like all the different uh, uh, buildup of emails. I'm looking at all the, the charts, like this guy was presenting his velocity banking model. So I already knew this person's already watching my content and probably other people's content on, on velocity. I, I could tell this guy was serious um, and he was presenting PDF models better than I could present it myself. And I was just like, wow, this is so cool. Um, and from there, we, we started implementing velocity banking pretty quickly. He was able to get a debt tool right away, um, had very good credit to begin with. So that wasn't really an issue. You know, income wasn't or, or income and cash flow wasn't that tough that bad compared to other cases I work with um, a business owner and uh, started out with a lot of you know mortgage student loan debt you know the whole nine right uh, most Americans in, in America here right bunch of uh, debt accumulation and, and the goal is really to wipe out a lot of it so with that over the last that first year I think was mostly velocity banking and then we initially Put a, put a policy in place. And this is where Steve comes in, uh, providing assistance on high cash value life insurance and really merging the two, velocity banking with a HELOC and infinite banking with a whole life policy, putting it all together to you know, really build his business, build cash, build wealth, 
And here we are today. So that's that's my viewpoint. But uh, Philip, I want to give you the floor and kind of, you know, where did it all begin for you? And uh, what has been your experience uh, working with me and Steve uh, throughout the process? Sure. Well, you, your timelines are perfect. So there's not a whole lot I can add there, except I, you're right. I started watching you some other content that would have been in the fall of 18. Um, started going through some things and um, built my first velocity banking model in February of 19. And then, um, uh, you know, I'm one who likes to research or study. And then that's what I eventually presented to you. And I, I think it'll help here. And, uh, you know, that's really it. it it's gone well. Um, we spent about a year, I remember, and it was primarily focused on the velocity banking. For me, it was more about managing the debt and and increasing cash flow, which has worked out very well. And then I think Denzel was about a year um, after that process that I started uh, looking at some of Nelson Nash's work. You and I started talking and uh, read a book from Nelson Nash and, and team, and then um, reached out to you and said, is there a next step? I'm starting to hear things. Um, and that's where we end up with the IBC. And then obviously uh, Steve helped us as well too with that. So I'm a huge fan. I mean, both pieces. It's actually literally been life changing for my life, my wife and me, um, and family. And I think that the thing that was the hardest is untangling or unraveling some mindsets that, you know, I think we're all indoctrinated for whatever reason. Sometimes it's commercially and um, really peeling those layers back, and um, you know, being looking at things openly. So again, I'm a fan and happy to. Uh, talk about that today and then a couple of questions on where we are in, in the journey. Gotcha. Take it away, my friend. <laughs> yeah. So I think a great place to start because now we're in uh, uh, August 27, 2021, as we're recording this, this uh, uh, video here, this collaboration. And so we're at a point where, um, Philip, you now are in your, you're approaching your, your second year, correct? In the past. In my, in my second year, it was in April was the anniversary. Yes. Right. April of 2021 was your, marks your second year. So we're now going to be approaching the, you know, preparing to max fund our policy for the third year. And we get this news that the uh, uh, section 7702 new MEC laws, we're hearing new terminology the, the whole industry, the whole, uh, you know, IRS regulation rules are, are shifting and changing, which brings up the question, okay, is my current policy still uh, uh, effective or do I need to make a change uh, to, to go with the new updates? And for those that are watching that have high cash value life insurance policies in place, and you're wondering the same question. Okay, I, I got a policy back in 2015, back in 2010 or 2018 with you know Guardian, Mass Mutual, New York Life, whatever it is. And these new MEC laws are coming out. The question becomes, okay, do I have the, the option? Is it a possibility to change some of the, the rules in, in my existing policy contract to maybe improve? the the cash buy performance and looking at the, the pros and cons to that and keeping it you know transparent all the way through or stick to where we're at you know um and really why why does that make sense so this is where you know steve comes in because he he loves this stuff 
and you know we'll geek out over it i geek out over it i'm sure philip does as well he's been consuming a lot of content so i think that's a good place to to start if i have a whole life policy that's designed for high cash value which philip does i do steve and, and many of our viewers uh watching does it make sense to stay with the guarantees which are higher now four percent or uh, uh what would be the process to move to the the new MEC laws where the guarantees do drop, yeah. but the MEC limit goes up? Mm -hmm. Good question. So should I change? So that, that question there first, or can I change? And the answer is, yes, you can change from an old product to a new product. There's some stipulations though. The new IRS law was passed really effective beginning 2020. I'm sorry, 2021. So if an individual has purchased a new policy and the, the issue date was 2021, they will have the option or opportunity to update that policy to comply with the new 7702 limits, which is exactly what you just mentioned, lower guarantees, but higher MEC limits. And I can touch on the lower guarantees as well because a big change that has occurred, just as I look at everything, different companies and such, is since the 1980s, most whole life insurance products with most companies have had a guaranteed rate of 4%, which means the MEC limits with almost all companies have been identical. Not to the penny, but very close, meaning for a 50-year-old male, $2 million will give him about $100,000 in a, in a clean MEC limit, a little bit more, based off a 4% guaranteed rate. Now, why I mention that is companies having the option to select different guaranteed interest rates, that actually has an impact on the MEC limit as well. So now as an agent or a consumer, someone who's used to shopping different products with different companies, you could see the same death benefit and the same MEC limit across the board. Now as companies have the right to choose different rates, we've got to have that awareness, do a little bit more digging to make sure it's truly an apples to apples comparison when I'm shopping different products and different companies. But that's on the guaranteed rates. It's a bit technical. We can get into that. Let me ask first, um, any questions on that piece or anything you'd like me to kind of expand on it before I just keep talking? <laughs> no, I, I don't have any now. I'm good. Gotcha. So as far as if you have an old contract with a guaranteed rate of 4%, being able to update that to a new contract with higher MEC limits but lower guarantees, the answer is yes, if you purchased a policy in 2021. If you purchased a policy prior to 2021, say it's like 2015, 2018, 2019, like you mentioned earlier, Denzel, and you said, hey, I do in fact like the new one more because it gives me more mech space perhaps. I can pound more money into a policy based on the maximum amount of life insurance I can obtain. In a case like that, an option would be to consider a 1035 exchange, which there's pros and cons to that because we're starting a new policy. Some of these new products have higher fees, lower guarantees. So it's an option, but like any, any option, I want to see the pros and cons. This way I can make an informed decision and make sure that it benefits me short-term and or long-term. So that's something I'll mention when, whenever we look at a 1035 exchange or any type of policy adjustment. So questions at all on that piece or any comments you guys want to chime in there? I would say um, touch on the 1035 exchange because in this particular situation with, with Philip, he got his policy in 20, 
2019 or 2020 was it 2020 yeah 2020 right and that was april so he would be in that position where well it's not a simple change it's more of an actual a brand new policy via 1035 exchange but within the same company so how does that look like in terms of cost when you look at the when you look at the internal cost the fact that you know he's older so the older we get the more insurance uh the, the, the cost is, does that make, uh, is it worth going through that, say, trouble or hassle uh, for the potential, maybe not guarantee, but the potential to be putting in, you know, X more amount of dollars for, you know, the hopes that that'll, you know, uh, perform better, so to speak. I gotcha. Yeah, definitely. So let me start here, actually. So, Phil, I've got a question for you. What is your your policy, the current death benefit on that policy? Um, I have it here, but I think it's about 760000 Ballpark's fine, yeah. So call it seven sixty. And when you took that out, you were, was it 52? No, I was um, 55. 55, gotcha. So at 55, you took that out. And the MEC limit on that then, was that a little over $40,000? was um, about 46. Gotcha. 46 and change, I don't remember exactly. Gotcha. So this will actually be a, a good exercise for us to go through and everyone listening to, to kind of see exactly the changes on this. So that product with a 4% guarantee, 55 year old male, 760,000 in life insurance, little north of 40 to $45,000 in MEC space your annual MEC limit. Now, with the new change, so that had a 4% guarantee. Let's assume it has a 3% guarantee with the new product. That And you go for a policy with the same death benefit, we'll assume 760 and life insurance is the maximum you can obtain. Could be more, but we'll just use that same figure. Your MEC limit now, based on that same 760, would be closer to about call it sixty-five to seventy thousand dollars. So, so I'm writing this down: sixty-five to seventy thousand. You say correct, correct. So you've got a lesser guarantee. So the trade-off there is when we look at the actual guaranteed values and the internal rate of return, the net performance on the guarantees, it will be less, and that's been based on my studies across the board with different companies, different products, guaranteed cash values are less. The advantage is now you can have more mech space based on the same death benefit. But here's the key on this, is there's always two limits to be aware of. We have the IRS limits, which is that mech limit, right? So for simplicity, let's say with a new product, you'd have a mech limit of 70,000 per year, what you could pay in. Whereas right now with the old product, if you have a MEC limit, I'm going to call it 45000 that means we can drive that base premium down to about $4,500 per year. So with an insurance company, their limit, I can usually 10x my base premium as far as a total payment per year that some of the larger companies allow for just a maximum premium and PUA blend. That limit with insurance companies has not changed. I've questioned them to death on that. <laughs> that was the first thing I was excited about. But as we look at the overall limits, the IRS limits have changed. So the same amount of life insurance gives you more mech space. So the ability to put more money into a product. But what does not change 
is if you went with that policy with the $70,000 MEC limit, we would need a base premium now of about $7,000, the same 10%. So the ratios have not changed there. Questions on any of that? I know that's some technical stuff I threw at you guys. No, I think I think that's great clarification because currently my, my base is about $4,200. And like I said, the MEC is 46, you know, so that tells you that delta there of you can go up to about $7,000 a year. That's interesting. So you'd actually pay more for less benefit because I, I remember. Correct. That okay. is true. Yeah, that is true. So from the insurance company's perspective, what this change has allowed them to do, when you lower the guaranteed rate on a whole life insurance product, what you'll find is the same premium dollar, the base premium amount, actually purchases, purchases one less life insurance. So from the company's perspective, it's reducing their reserve requirements, taking off some pressure because of this low interest rate environment. And really why this change was pushed for so hard by the insurance companies is that they are not expecting interest rates to, to shoot up anytime soon. Mm -hmm. They want to be protected in the event that this low interest rate environment remains low for, for a longer duration than, than what's anticipated. So they're protecting themselves so they can continue to operate and offer an attractive product. So just with hearing that and seeing exactly how insurance companies are positioning themselves, that is where personally I still like the higher guarantees. And that's just my personal preference. There's pros and cons to both. But as I look at that, insurance companies having some of the smartest people in the world as far as being behind their investment strategy, having their finger on the pulse of the financial system, the interest rate environment. I do like the stronger guarantees just as I, I weigh out the pros and cons of both the old and the new. Questions on any of that? I did not know. Gotcha. You know, that's really, really, it, it provides a lot of clarity for people that are just kind of looking at it from a high level point of view, like, oh my God, my guarantees are going down. So that means the policy is going to perform bad or, or, it doesn't even make sense anymore to, to get a policy. And that would be um, a very, you know, valid viewpoint. And mm -hmm. now it's a matter of, you know, peel back the layers, wait, what are we doing? Right. What was the purpose of us even obtaining insurance in the first place? You know, first and foremost, yes, we've got that um, death benefit protection, but, we more so are, are targeting the cash value. And so when we look at that, uh, a question would be, even though the guarantees go down, the MEC limits come up, when I put in a lump sum of money, it's anywhere between 40 and 70K, as long as I stick to the same designing method of say 90, 10 to maybe 75, 25 uh, split, depending on our age, yep. health, and finances, and time of uh, length of funding, mm -hmm. we still have the same percentage wise amount of cash day one. So for example, if I had a, an old policy, uh, uh, in my case, I'm, I'm putting 70K in, in guarding and I start out with almost 87, 88 or so in, in starting cash value of what I put in. If I was to start another policy moving forward, say in 20, 22 or 2023, because I'm considering getting a third, a third policy on myself, no matter what, as long as I design it for high cash value, am I still going to have 
in that neighborhood of 85 to 88, almost 90% start starting cash value, because that is more important. I, I, does that get affected? I'm with with you. Good question. And this will 100% depend on the insurance company and changes they're making. So you mentioned Guardian. Guardian, they're one of my favorites. One of the four major mutual companies, a lot of flexibility. They, with their old product, and for a long time, have had a PUA fee of 5%, which is an industry leader. Most insurance companies have higher PUA fees that often range between 75 and 10%, a lot of times even higher than that. Now, those are gross fees, so we never see that dollar amount taken off the top. But the philosophy behind charging a higher PUA rider, rider fee from a lot of companies, if you talk to a Mass Mutual or a Northwestern, um, Penn Mutual is very big on this, and they really back up their, their illustration claims because of their high PUA fees, how they deliver strong long-term performance, is the higher the PUA fee up front, the greater the long-term performance should be. And there's a lot that goes into that. Now, again, that's all well and good. I like to see the actual proof. So, I mean, that's why I mentioned Penn Mutual and illustrations. I haven't seen proof from them yet. Not a bad company. They might have it, but I haven't seen it. Um, But you'll see that with other companies charging more on those PUA fees. So where I'm going with this, Guardian for a long time has had a 5% PUA fee. With this change, they increased the PUA rider fee to 10% to be in line with other companies just from a competitive standpoint. So your specific question was, if I pump money into a well-designed policy, I might see 85 to 90%, 87 or 88% day one in cash value if I max fund that thing. Now you'll see between 82 to 85%. So you're gonna be right around 83 or 84% in the first year, specifically with Guardian products because of that higher PUA fee that also impacts the break-even point. So if you looked at Guardian products, typically you could break even if you max fund it year over year between years three and four. Now it's right around year five between years four and five. So the higher PUA fee pushes at the break-even point a little bit, the first year cash value. That's a bit of a trade-off there. But now from a Guardian perspective, when you look at the the non-guarantees and the projections, which I don't like like ever banking on that. They do look much better than than what they had looked like before. So greater potential, I'm going to emphasize that word, greater potential long-term performance. Questions on any of that? I'm not going deep, guys. <laughs> no, I would, I would just add, no, I would just add in my questions or my thoughts are pretty much in line with Denzel. So for me, what I'm thinking is probably keep my current policy yeah not go through an exchange again just for me but just yep. thinking about this but with the 7002 yeah. my wife we're, we're getting ready to um, look at a similar product for her we might want to go we would we would have yeah. that option if we open for the end of the year but i think we would look at maybe going with a new product um, similar parameters as mine except that would allow us to put more cash into hers and then we would have access to both correct um, you'd have my current and then hers and they would be they trend about a year and a half, two years um, separate from when, from their start date. So. Gotcha. Very nice. Yeah. And I'll add this. I mean, with the new product, everything I've seen with the major mutual companies, their overall investment philosophy and what they're doing, they're not bad by any means. Like 
they did everything that, that, that they could in their power. And this is from what I've, what I've observed, especially what I've seen from Mass Mutual and Guardian, not to take more for themselves as a company, but really to give it back to the consumer across the board with the guarantees like Mass. They filed all of their different products at different guaranteed rates which is going to be a, a blast for agents trying to figure out the MEC limit calculations and how that works and comparing it to different companies. But they're not by any means. They haven't raised their PUA fees. So now you'll see more upfront in mass mutual contracts than Guardians, where in the past it was flip-flop. And again, you're talking a couple of percentage points. But to get back on track to answer your question or just to touch on your, your point there, Philip, is you can't go wrong with that strategy at all. I mean yeah. – yeah, especially if you like the idea of having more mech space on her policy, just based on what you'll be able to obtain, you'll have that with the new policies, whereas with the old ones, you don't. And you can also compare and contrast right now. We've got the next four months, a unique right. opportunity, the, the first time in a long time where you can select the, uh, the guaranteed rate of 4% or the new one. And then soon enough, it'll just be the new one. Yeah. And see, for me, again, I appreciate, you know, it's not bad. It's just what fits your... Yeah situation and understanding, you know, how it fits for my wife and I, we have three children and all in their twenties, you know, almost all out of the house now. So, you know, this is really our earning potential window here we get into. So that um, as kids are coming out of the house, expenses are going to drop and then having more money to put it into a product. You know, I, I think we may, we'll run the analysis another time, but I think we may look at the new product for her because that next space will be important. Um, so we have more flexibility in the future. Yeah, I, I'm with you. I, I mean, I've looked at some of the, the term policies I have that were for conversion purposes. I'm going to convert those based on the new limitations in the future and then just go through underwriting again to take out more products now just based on the 4% guarantee because I, I do like the higher guarantees personally. But I mean, I'm I'm going to be taking out policies based on the new limitations because it still works. I mean, at the yeah, the end of the day, like I always state that a, a well-designed whole life policy, meaning minimum premium, minimum expenses, maximum cash value, with the four major mutuals, will likely deliver somewhere between that three to five percent net internal rate of return after all of the expenses, and that's that's going to be the same thing. The guarantees are not quite as attractive. I might see an IRR of around two percent or so, two to two point two five net. Versus the old one, I might see two and a half to three point two five net. So I mean, that's a different on, difference in the guarantees. But when you look at the the fact that most of these companies have operated in a non guaranteed interest rate environment or expense environment, they're still going to deliver. Yeah, yeah, I think that makes sense to me. I think the the next thing for our situation may relates to others is what Denzel talked about with a small business. So we, my wife and I, both have term policies that are um, old, you know, I'm 20 years old and they expire uh, in 2022. So I'm set um, in October 22. So I'm set, but now we need to think about product for her. And then the question becomes, and I don't know if it's like key person or key man type of situation, but she runs our business and do we run the policy through our business and, or do we do it personally? When I think about that, and again, not having nearly the experience in and training you two have, but what's attractive to me through the business is, does that afford me another cash flow opportunity through the business? You know, can it, is it easier to 
borrow from the policy, you know, and build it up quickly. For example, again, this is nothing unique. This is more some of the modeling from Nelson Nash, but could I be pumping money into the policy and then borrowing from that for payroll for some for example, or rent, you know, something that's consistent gotcha. and you can really time mark that. And, you know, so the, I guess those are questions I have, and I know there's deeper tax consequences than that mm -hmm. that we have to think about, but just from a policy standpoint, that's interesting because we will get a policy for life. It's just a matter of what we do and then how it's funded. Got it. Thanks for that overview there. So the type of business, um, what's the, the entity set up? Is it an LLC, S-Corp, C-Corp? It's an S-Corp, yeah. An it's S -corp. an S-Corp. Gotcha. So it's a pass-through entity. And, and I've got a similar situation myself where I looked at, I've got a pass-through entity. I looked at policies where my question was just yours. Should I own it individually or should I have the company own it? And the first thing I'll mention is from a tax perspective, there's no difference at all, especially when it comes to making payments to the policy. Okay. So if I want, yeah, if I want access to the cash value in a product, policies are funded with after-tax dollars, and that's really what grants me access to the cash value tax-free, as long as I don't make it out or anything like that. Got it. Okay. Mm -hmm. So a question that comes up frequently, and let me know if this has ever crossed your mind, is from a business perspective, a lot of business owners approach cash value life insurance and they're they're looking to do exactly what you just mentioned use it for expenses you know pump more cash flow through the product but then they also question hey can i deduct the premium and pua payments as well as a business expense because it is an insurance product Has yeah that oh that, that absolutely yeah that absolutely is crossed my because because especially with the s corp like you said in the past through and i appreciate the clarification because i didn't know what the actual implications would be on that but it, yeah, no, I, that's really, I can't add any more than what you said, because that's, that has crossed my mind. Gotcha. Yeah. And it crossed my mind too. I mean, years ago when I was looking at it, I'm like, hey, is there any way we could do that? <laughs> but no, I wish. I mean, I'll, I could leave it at that. But at the end of the day, no. So I cannot deduct the premium payments. There are times with a C corporation, um, you do have the ability to deduct a, per, a percentage of the premium payment, but it often is excluded to the base premium piece, additional PUAs. They don't allow that. When I say they, the IRS, if they catch on to that, it's going to be it's going to be caught pretty fast, and that's going to just cause a whole mess of problems. Um, the the short answer is no. I cannot deduct the premium payments, and then still access the the cash value one hundred percent tax free. What was kind of put in place uh, with life insurance products that a lot of doctors' offices used to do this, they don't do it that much anymore, are 412 and 419 plans. And really what that is, that's a qualified plan that involves whole life insurance, cash value life insurance, and typically an annuity. So products with contractual guarantees, right? Could be a whole life product with a guaranteed rate of three or 4%. Same thing with an annuity that has guarantees. And business owners could make huge payments into these plans. It would all be tax deductible, but it is technically a qualified plan. Originally, people would say, hey, it's life insurance. I can get in there now and access it tax-free. That was shut down really quick, as you could imagine. So it's a qualified plan at the end of the day, just with life insurance in there. Uh, we don't see them use that that much at all, just because it it, it ruins what everyone wants with the product, which is access to that cash value anytime they want. Steve, do you know if if you did a qualified plan like that, is it annuitized then? So is that using pre-tax dollars mm -hmm. for the individual? 
Correct. So all payments are pre-tax dollars. Yeah. Okay. See, there's an advantage there. At least that's going to insulate you from your federal and state in most most cases. If you have state tax, that Correct. that'll be okay. Yeah. The immediate immediate relief. There. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. It, it can make sense. I mean, everyone's different. And I've heard, and you've probably heard this frequently, just on your in your years of researching, especially cash value life insurance. That there's a lot of negativity directed toward 401ks or any type of qualified accounts because you can't access your money. Like for me, I won't be able to access it for another 30 years. Denzel would have to wait almost, you know, 35 years. <laughs> yeah. Uh, longer than we than he's been around. Not not me anymore. I keep getting older. Um, <laughs> but you have to you tie the money up for a long period of time, very limited access. And when you eventually access that money, who knows where tax brackets will be? Right. They'll probably be higher. I won't have as many deductions. So a lot of times people end up paying more tax when they take money from 401ks and qualified accounts. And as a result, especially a lot of a lot of people that are pro whole life insurance will beat up those qualified accounts and say, don't do that because of everything I just mentioned. And I get it. But at the same time, to the point you mentioned about two to three minutes ago, is it does give you some immediate relief with being able to deduct some payments. Like everything has a place in my opinion. Um, yeah, I don't like to just discount one product because there's one bad thing about it. A lot of people have done very well with their 401ks and their qualified accounts. And then they layer that with cash value life insurance, which is their tax-free bucket and then their taxable investments, their real estate, whatever it might be. It's really allowing everything to work together the successful people that I work with or that, that I see in general, they are doing that. They're not just one thing's the solution and that's it. I mean, you can do all right, but yeah. yeah. Well, I think it's like we said too, like if you ask me why I would look at, you know, a qualified retirement plan like that, sheltering income is going to become more important or at least that the tax burden federal and state for me because I are, I'm losing deductions or I've lost deductions now with children. So I'm going to pay it one way or the other. I'd rather pay it to myself in some form of deferred compensation that I can later you know, tap into. And some of those plans, as you know, you can't borrow or half of them typically up to about $100,000. So it's not a whole lot of money, but it is something, you know, you yeah. can pay for a wedding, pay that, you know, pay that back or, uh, you know, buy a car through it, pay it back if it makes sense. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So I think you're right. It, it just depends on the application. Correct. Yeah. 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 That becomes, that becomes very interesting. I just wanted to add a little, uh, not necessarily backing up those qualified plans, but realizing there's a place for it for sure. And I think where something like that would make sense is like in a situation where, you know, say, you Philip, you know, the, the older we get, the more, the more income becomes more important because we're going to be say working less. So depending on where a person is at in their accumulation point of, you know, your working years, golden years, retirement years, I think what I find pretty interesting is these unique strategies that I, I look at online for people who have amassed a lot of income, uh, a lot of wealth via capital gains, and they're considering maybe selling uh, a, a large sum of um, assets. For example, let's say I bought crypto, you know, Bitcoin when it first came out, and now I've got one, $2 million worth that I want to be able to say sell 
and maybe use for my business or whatever the case may be. One one person I, I follow, his name's Mark J. Kohler. You might, you guys might be familiar yep. with him. Great YouTube channel. You know, he put out a video about, you know, how to basically pay zero in taxes on you when you sell your crypto. And I think this could apply to other asset asset classes as well. And he had this whole entire structure where in summary it's involving you selling the asset you're going to have a tax implication and to basically wipe that out we're going to start uh you know a charitable remainder trust which then that trust purchases a whole life insurance policy so you get that you know this is where you know i, I would assume ibc could come into place depending on how that policy is designed he called it an eyelet irrevocable life insurance trust which then the money from there gets pulled out to then purchase an annuity uh, to some degree. And then that annuity now pays an income. And over a five-year stretch, you can deduct uh, through the CRT, the, the capital gains tax on the million dollars that you sold in crypto. So it was like, I, I found it to be a fascinating strategy, but I guess it would only make sense if you're in that position where you you need to sell, you know, mm -hmm. or, and and you're going to have a heavy uh, tax implication today, and you want to reduce that, well then, okay, maybe some kind of qualified annuity with a mix of insurance, with a mix of you know a, a trust, and putting it all together, maybe that's a strategy. So I, I uh, you know I never like to like you said, Steve, you know, bash the other because you know it's no access to cash and very little flexibility. And, you know, you still got to pay taxes later. And we don't know if that later is going to be higher, but you got to weigh it. Right. It's yeah. like, Oh, shoot, I got a 30% tax to deal with today. That's a 300 grand of what I just sold of a million. That's, that's a lot. Yeah. And, and if you're telling me I can reduce 300 grand over five years by throwing it into some kind of annuity and then take the hit later and not feel it as much, that might be something to consider, you know. So I just wanted to throw that yeah. out. Uh, it, from an end user standpoint, I would say too, it's I believe in some level of diversification. So, right. you know, as as great as I think the whole life policy is and infinite banking concept and how it all works, I still believe that there's, you know, some aspect of diversification that helps as well too. Yeah, a hundred percent. I'm with you there. What I definitely want to touch on, because um, I didn't do this in full detail, is more of pros and cons to having a business own the policy versus an individual. That way I don't just yeah. kind of... Let's that, dive into that. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sorry. That, would, that yeah. would help me because that's... I mean, we're at the point now, it, it's like we're going to add another policy. It's yeah. just a matter of old rules or old product, new product, but funding it. And yeah. what's what's important, uh, just to give a little background, I guess, and for other business owners, like we started this business uh, really effectively in January of 18. And we're getting to the point where you have almost all the debt off the company. So trying to decide, do we, and my wife makes less than some of the employees that she has, but that's by design because we're, you know, kind of the velocity banking model, like let's get the debt off as fast as we can. And we would have actually had it done if it weren't for COVID. But all that being equal, we're at the point, like, do we increase her salary at some point once, because soon we'll have all the initial debt, the startup debt off the company. Do I increase the salary? Do we do you know some other benefits? Maybe some of her, um, some of her um, employees to offer some things. As, as we have some people who are now been there for multiple years, so I'm just interested in that discussion. 
Gotcha. Yeah. And what I can touch on um, for some of the technical aspects of if you actually have the policy owned as a, have the business own it versus her owning it individually, especially, so you've got some employees. How many employees do you have? He has about, uh, when it ebbs and flows, because it depends, you know, there's a bit of a seasonal aspect. She's had as many as about 27. She probably has um, 17, 18 right now. There's really two who are full-time, though. Everyone else is is on a part-time schedule, 30 hours or less. Yeah, no, nice work on that. From a a long-term perspective, so you started in 2018, so about three years ago, coming up on four. Does she have, or do you guys have any plans to sell it down the road? Have you ever discussed well, that? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, we have. That's a good question, too. Um, I would think that we would hold it for at least another 10 years and maybe longer. We thought about the legacy aspect of this, too. Do we hand it off to the, the children or kind of move back into a more semi-owner-occupied model and let somebody else gotcha. run it? But yeah, there, there's some, I don't have a direct answer, but we've looked at all of that. There could be just a clean sell of it as well, too. I gotcha. If it's worth if it's worth worthwhile, yeah, then definitely would consider. At, at it. least not for ten years, I would say though. Right now, if, if we sold and just sold it outright to somebody else. Got it. Got it. Okay. So, in terms of taking out a policy on your wife and electing ownership to be your wife as an individual or the company, if you have the company own the policy on her, you'll be able to fund it in the exact same manner. It can be funded through company money, company funds. The cash value will be an asset on the company's balance sheet. So does increase the value of the business over time because view it as liquid cash in some respects. Cash value, we know how that works. Very easy to access. You have life insurance, which you can designate the company as the beneficiary. So she's the sole owner. Do you guys own it together? We own it together, yes. So if anything happened to her tomorrow, would that really crippled a business because she's operating it? Yes. Yeah, so now you've got that key man insurance aspect. If you said, hey, I'd still like this to move forward, but something just happened, I don't have time to manage the business. I've got my own full-time job, but I would like to see it continue to go, to continue to move forward because that's what she wanted. She really enjoyed it, and I'd like to see that continue for her. In a case like that, the death benefit actually comes into play where you can use those proceeds to try and hire someone to continue to operate that. So you're going to find a seasoned CEO or operator. They're typically not cheap to come in and continue to run a business with their experience. But now you've got the life insurance, the actual death benefit piece, which most people say, I don't care about that when we set the policy up. That actually helps in a case like that for a, from a business perspective. Um, questions or, or comments on that piece? No, you're, that's, that's, that's a perfect uh, set of questions I, I'd really like to know, and I'm sure others would as well. Gotcha. So asset in the balance sheet, you've got the life insurance protection. Now, why I asked if you have any plans to sell the business down the road is if you do sell it, the cash value is an asset on the balance sheet. And this depends on what you guys want to do. You can sell it and actually have the business maintain ownership of that policy, Maybe she still wants to operate it to a degree. Maybe she doesn't. But if the life insurance is still on her and the business still owns the policy and is still designated the beneficiary, then that death benefit flows back to the company who may be in someone else's hands down the road. Now, with that said, that's easy to exit. right? Before you sell it, you might say, well, we want to keep this policy, so let's transfer ownership to us. 
just as husband and wife where she owns it individually. There are some potential tax consequences whenever we look at a transfer of ownership. If there's gains on a policy, we do have to be aware of that. And you can look at some strategies where maybe you have a trust own the policy initially and that business can access the cash value, but so can you as an individual. And I would work with a, a tax attorney on that, but there's ways to set it up where you may be able to get the best of both worlds there. This way, if you do decide to sell, you're not kind of handcuffed where you say, okay, well, the company owns the policy. So if we transfer it, we can purchase the policy outright. We could have ownership transferred to us, but I'd be liable for the, for the taxation on the gains or I can buy the policy from the company. That's a strategy some people do. But it's not as simple as, hey, just transfer ownership to me and I'll just walk away with it. There's going to be some type of potential tax situation there. Okay which is not pleasant, where if you just own it as an individual, you don't have to worry about that at all. Right. Mm -hmm. And you can right. still, yeah, and you can still use the funds for the business if you decide to do so. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's interesting. Question. So just for, for, mm -hmm. for clarity, Steve, uh, just so I understand, if I owned it individually, if I had a, a business, multiple employees, and I, I own policies on myself, mm -hmm. the, and, and let's say the, the, I have a partner and that partner runs the, the organization yeah. and they pass away. If it was owned individually by them and they put the beneficiary as me because I'm the spouse, mm -hmm. well, then I guess it's up to me to delegate those, those um, tax-free funds to not only cover, you know, cost of burial and, and all that and any debts that person may have accumulated, but then just the majority of the funds gets, thrown right back into the business to find another CEO, Correct. Uh, find someone to help uh, uh, pick up the pieces in that Correct. sense. Correct. And typically in those situations, there is some type of trust, whether it's set up initially or down the road, that that stipulates how and when those money should be used. Got because it. If, if it just gets thrown into the business, then you've got you know, the, the chances of human error or greed, not to say that that exists with any of you guys, but someone saying, hey, we've got this big pile of cash. Maybe we should just keep it. Should we really go look for someone? Whereas if you have it spelled out in a trust, this money is purposed for, for A, B, and C. Option A is finding a new CEO because I want, want this business to continue. B and C, whatever you want. So that's often where we have some type of an agreement or trust drafted as well, really to make sure everything goes how it's supposed to go. And then you don't see some article in the newspaper saying, you know, <laughs> Joe ran away with the money over here because he could, because there's no protection. And that stuff does happen usually when there's no agreements or no protection there. Very well, interesting. It, it sounds, if I summarize all this, and again, think about my situation as we've talked about might just be make more sense for my wife to own the policy outright or we would own the policy outright and not intermingle that with the business um, because we're coming to the point about maybe it'll adjust her salary. I could probably be almost cost neutral. I could put that money salary from the increased salary into the life insurance and it would be a little cleaner because I don't know what's going to happen in the future. And with these kind of dollars we're talking about, I mean, if she had a similar policy as me, Roughly half and a million the, more. Yeah, uh, exactly. I was going to say, so the MEC limit would be significantly, uh, the MEC limit would be higher. You could put more money in, so there's even more dollars there. Even in families, and I've dealt with people enough, so that 
when you get down to that kind of money, things could get really challenging if it's not spelled out. Yeah. You know what I would do? Thanks for that info. What I would do from a, a simplicity standpoint, you can look at trusts and all that kind of stuff down the road is you can take out a policy that is individually owned by her. She can access the cash value anytime. And if you want to use it for the business, you could just take loans for the business. You could also establish a business line of credit against the policy. And you can do that through a bank cash value collateral loan. And then on the oh, bank. Yeah. yeah. On the, on the That's bank, interesting. So you, you could collateralize the policy, which I know you've talked about before, but you could do yeah. that with your business. Because that's that's the thing. It's the cash flow. I mean, obviously the policy is important, but it's cash flow because listen, our business, there's an ebb and a flow. Yeah. And, and at times we have a lot of, a lot, we get extra cash for a few months and then, you know, the leaner times are coming, but it's interesting. Like, where do you hold that? How do you do that? And that's, that's, that's why I've thought about life insurance and the really just another adaptation IBC. So, okay. That's interesting. Gotcha. Yeah. That's a nice option. So with those cash value collateral loans, you can take an individually owned policy. And when you apply for the loan on that lender's paperwork, you do need to disclose, check off, is this an individual loan or is it a business loan? which also makes it very easy to deduct the in interest if it's for, for business purposes. Sure. But that policy, what I just want to emphasize is I do not need to have a business own the policy to establish that business line of credit against the policy. I can own it as an individual. Right. So that, that kind of gives you the best of both worlds in that respect. And those, those collateral loans, I don't want to sidetrack the conversation. They're easy. And right now, just where the interest rate environment is, what I'm seeing actually happen with policies in terms of net internal rates of return, those collateral loans still give individuals to have the positive spread where they actually see over time they're earning more in the policy than what they are borrowing against. Whereas a direct policy loan right now when you look at the net numbers does not really provide that. I mean, with the 7702 change based on the non-guarantees, you can kind of sort of slice it but it's hypothetical versus the collateral loans to sure bet so i mean that's how i look at that yeah i watched your content i thought that was really interesting because you know and i know you're always trying to present both sides of it, but it might make more sense to look at those collateralized collateralized loans right now because yeah. of the interest rate environment yeah so yeah mm -hmm. big time yeah old products definitely because i mean if you take a like your guardian product for for instance has a six percent loan rate if you take a mass mutual product like Denzel, and you have, you've got a 5% loan rate. If you take some of the older products, so I mean, I've got um, an old Guardian product I took out when I was a little younger than you are right now, Denzel, um, and it's got an 8% loan rate before they updated the loan interest rates. Now, they match the dividend rate and borrowed funds, so I mean, that's nice. I see a nice cash value bump, but at the same time, my net IRR ain't no 8%, like I wish it was, <laughs> but it's not, no. So that's a great case when I study the numbers to say, okay, if I'm earning that 4 to 5% net, that's the tax-free IRR, and then I can go obtain a loan at 3% for business tax deductible, very easy. It's a line of credit, minimal underwriter from the underwriting from the bank. That's where I look at it. I've got a nice spread. And it really, it, it makes sense. And a lot of business owners and real estate investors, they've really leveraged that. It's helped them overcome that hurdle of being told you've got a positive spread. They look at the numbers like, no, I don't. The dividend, the gross dividend is higher than the loan rate. But in reality, it's less. That collateral loan helps them really leverage the policy in a manner like, okay, this makes sense.
Yeah, that's that's a very clean analysis there in regards to, oh, do I just borrow from myself, uh, uh, take a loan directly out of the policy and deal with that arbitrage? And that's where I kind of dwell in a lot of my content. When I talk about that, I'm like, when I say, you know, how do we wash this, you know, so to speak? And it may not always occur just from the policy itself. We have to have an external factor such as you're paying off a 15% debt. Yeah. Well, then, yeah, there's a big spread there, sure. a lot of big gain or or we're going to make an investment and that return is going to yield X. But now you're dealing with hypotheticals. And, I, you know, I tend to dwell in that hypothetical space and try to make it as as safe and secure as, as possible to create that spread. But when you bring up cash value collateral loan, which I still not have practiced yet, but I've spoke about as well, it is actually become more and more attractive as I learn more about those new MEC laws and how the the internal stuff of the policies are, are staying the same, but interest rates are continuing to come lower and lower and lower. So it's like, wait, does it make sense for me to borrow at a five, 6% of my policy or do this cash value collateral loan at a 4%? Um, I'm not sure if it's simple interest or amortized, but either way, I get the, um, the deduction if it's being ran through a business. Yeah. So that's pretty interesting. It it is. And also, Philip, just because a a question that I would have, as I explained that to you before too, a clean version is if you have your wife own the policy, establish that business line of credit, and then you do sell and say, okay, we've got to clear this line here. The the new buyer wants it cleared, but we don't have the capital to do so, or we don't want to take, take money out of the business. In a case like that, you could literally just borrow from your policy pay off the loan to the lender because the cash value has to be there to establish that line of credit and that allows the easy sell and then you can take some of the proceeds pay off the policy loan and you're back to where you would have been yeah no i think that makes sense you know again it's just another i mean you know different vehicles for different people but this is just another example for me about how these whole life policies the way we're structured with the high cash value are so flexible and malleable and, and you can make them work in different ways just for that example you gave Steve, because i don't know what the next 10 years plus will hold in terms of business ownership yeah things and, and i and i like the fact that you know because the crystal ball gets pretty murky as you look out and yeah. and uh, that far ahead and i like that option yeah definitely yeah no gotcha the only only other thing i wanted to add just with the the 7702 um because i know before the call you did mention Boley and coley briefly denzel which is a bit of a different animal in itself when you look at a pure bank-owned life insurance or Coley life insurance, corporate-owned life insurance, which is a one-time lump sum. It's a MEC policy at the end of the day, but you have positive cash value day one. The thing about those, and this I did not really like about the 7702 change, or I should say what I didn't like is what I see insurance companies doing. There's definitely favoritism toward corporations and banks with a ton of money compared to the individual. And what I mean when I say that is with the new 7702 change, guaranteed rates went down, MEC limits went up. But when you look at the guaranteed cash value and the net internal rates of return, the new products, you have less than the old ones. No matter how you spend it, no matter how well you design that policy, like it is what it is. So not bad, but it's less. Whereas with bank-owned life insurance, I mean, we had the, the privilege to work with a bank 
earlier this year. And at that precise time, one of the major mutual companies updated their Boley product and we compared the new versus the old. The old product had a higher guaranteed cash value interest rate, very similar just from a philosophy or just a structural standpoint to whole life where our guaranteed rates came down. Same thing with Boley. But they reduced the insurance expenses more for banks on bank on life insurance products, where even though that guaranteed rate on bank products has come down, the net performance, the internal rate of return had increased. Mm. So they're not getting hit as hard on the cash value standpoint. The death benefit is substantially less. That's how they did it. They cut the insurance expenses more. But, you know, the amount of lobbying that goes on, that's a big reason too. I mean, there's a reason banks have so much money in cash value life insurance. So insurance companies are going to make sure that they're protected because of BOLI, how that works. When they make a deposit, it goes right into the insurance company's general account. Um that's all a bit off topic of what we were talking about today, but it was on my mind. It's just, it's interesting to hear that kind of stuff where whole life, life insurance is great, but in this particular case with this change, like they, they made sure that they're going to keep one of the most profitable, profitable products alive for them with those Boley and Coley sales because they're huge deposits. They did not, they didn't give up any consumer value there. It got enhanced from the cash value perspective. But anyway, sorry. Yeah, no, it's interesting. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. That's really powerful because, you know, the, the viewer watching says, oh, wow, you know, it, it's the the little guy, you know, takes a hit in a sense. Um, but the way I look at it is I'm like, well, you know, in, in order for me to, if I have the desire to get to that level, if I wanted to start a bank myself, yeah. I've got to play the game. Um, and and we're, we're in this game of money. And it's a game of doubles, right? How can I take a thousand dollars, make it two grand and just keep doubling it? You know, it's, what is it? Nine doubles away from a million, right? And then I think another 10 or 15 doubles from a billion. So it's just a, a matter of taking your, your money and figuring out the best way to make $1 more than once, right? Use, use a dollar more than once in your favor. And you're going to have to go through those, those painful steps in money and understand these different products and services that exist and dive deep into it. So for the viewer watching, you know, don't get discouraged. We went deep into the meat and potatoes, but it's important because it, there's not too many people doing that, going real, real deep um, for the fear that you, the viewer, are not going to understand it. And I know that people that are watching IBC Global or my channel, people like Philip are going to take the time and yeah, you may not understand it the first five or 10 videos, but stick around because eventually you're going to start getting the terms and you start feeling it and you're like, Oh, okay. I get it. I get it. And you know, you're going to be become smarter in that sense or, or more uh, the ability to comprehend the information faster, more effectively and take action with that. So I, you know, I would, I would leave it there with everybody that's, you know, watch this video today it probably has to go back two and three times over what the heck did Steve say at, at minute 31 and what was Philip saying there and what was Denzel saying here? And, but uh, you know, it, it took me over a year to really understand the basics of IBC and I'm still learning, you know, three, four years into it. Steve is still learning. Philip's still learning. We're all still learning. We're trying to make it happen. Right. So uh, just wanted to throw that out there. 
Um, well, and Denzel, I would add too, in, in right along those lines, I appreciate what both of you are doing because you know, you're making the case at first for velocity banking and then IBC, because for me, one of the mind shifts that to take is when I pay a dollar for something, I've lost control of it. When it flat out, I mean, I used to live out of my debit, debit card, you know? So, I mean, like a lot of people, your condition, you know, don't accumulate debt. But I start thinking now, and you talked about arbitrage before, and then you started to allude to the whole aspect about velocity banking. What can I do to keep moving that dollar before I'm almost like pinching it now, not to let it go? And am I going to use a credit card, let's say, for example, and gain points? We've talked about that before. It depends on it. Might as well get some points out of that and then pay it off the next month. In the meantime, I'm taking that cash, putting it in um, my model and keeping the interest, my simple, simple interest, you know, so I almost have two, well, I shouldn't say almost, I have two touches right there at a $1 and that only, you know, multiplies. So I think that's great, great point. And it does take your, your head around, uh, it does take a long time to get your head around that. Um, and the other thing is that, you know, like, and, and from an end user standpoint, is just taking a step back and educating yourself and not following the indoctrination that I think we've all been exposed to through the years and really thinking for yourself. Gotcha. Well, no, really appreciate that, Philip. And thanks so much for your time today. My pleasure. Uh, yeah, no, thank you so much. Would love to have I you. I appreciate the deep dive too, because it's, if this is helpful to someone else, this is great. And Denzel has been, you know, tremendously helpful. So I really appreciate it. Yeah, no, no, very welcome. I mean, the deep stuff I've, yeah, well, I won't get into <laughs> deep top, deep points on the deep topic. We'll, we can stop there. Um, unless there's anything, I don't want to skip over anything. Anything else you wanted to mention, Denzel or Philip, before we wrap up today? I am good. I'm solid. I think I think we hit all the points Philip wanted to, to, to capture today. And yeah. you know, we'll, obviously, we'll keep learning and keep strategizing, you know, behind the scenes off camera, of course. And, uh, you know, we'll continue to come back here on a, on a monthly basis with, you know, Steve and I and maybe bring on other guests that have policies similar to Philip's situation or totally different. Um, and at the end of the day, the viewer wins. You know, you guys get to see a, a deeper insight of how all this stuff works. Definitely, definitely. Well, thank you so much, uh, both of you guys, for your time. Really appreciate it. We will talk to you all soon. And if anyone has any questions, uh, we've got contact information below. And we'll talk to you all soon. Have a great day, guys. Thank you. Have a good day.